All right, good morning, everybody. Good morning. So uh, we're going to go ahead and get started. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this fall morning. We thank you, Lord, that uh, you've revealed yourself, especially to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that he has done everything and manifested everything that is needed for us to be saved, for us to be healed. And Lord, we pray that, um, that more of who you are would come into our hearts. And that we would be blessed to know you more deeply. And to be healed in ways um, by, by that knowledge that we have not even anticipated. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So it's, uh, it's my uh, intimidating duty to pick up where Paul Watkins has left off and get into the second article of the Creed. Paul is an incredibly lucid teacher, um, but part of why this is intimidating is not just following um, Paul's footsteps a little bit, but anytime we talk about deep theological things, like things that formed the Creed, I feel like I'm a novice all over again. These are, these are deep things that are really important, and um, it's, uh, it's amazing when you try and speak to them how easy it is to step off into, uh, into heresy. <laughs> you know, you're trying to explain one aspect of God, and you go too far, and you, you know, somehow diminish his divinity. And then another aspect of Jesus, and you diminish his humanity, and either way, you lose the fullness of the revelation of God in Christ, which means that then you've compromised, you know, how people can be healed and how people can be saved, which is one of the things that I want to start out just by saying. We're going to be talking about the second article of the Creed, which starts to talk about Jesus and who is Jesus, what is his nature and his personhood as both God and man, and why that is so important for our salvation, which is what I want to say right at the outset, which is... Heresy is cruel. There's a wonderful book that I've dipped into over the years here and there when I'm trying to refresh myself on um, what it means to believe the true faith, right? The faith once given to the apostles and handed down to us throughout the the centuries. And um, the title of this book, The Cruelty of Heresy, speaks to why this is so important. Um, The author, C. Fitzsimmons Allison, is one of our bishops, and he's now retired. But good, solid, Anglican, Orthodox, believing scholar... And his whole book, The Cruelty of Heresy, is trying to help its readers, and hopefully each of us will take in some of this this morning, to appreciate why it is important to get Jesus and God the way he has revealed himself. Because if you don't, it actually ends up being cruel. This is not just an intellectual exercise, in other words. People's lives literally hang in the balance. Our salvation literally hangs in the balance. And so we need to take this to heart. We need to, in some level, really know God in order to be saved by him. And uh, Jesus, of course, is the one who does that um, in the, in the um, uniquely powerful way that he does as both son of God and man who has come to save us. So um, if you guys each have your, um, your sheet in front of you, we're going to kind of follow the format that Paul's done, and we'll read together the, the second article. What we're going to do is slightly out of order today, because we're going to focus on the eternally begotten um, nature of Jesus, the eternally begotten of the Father um, 
phrase of the Creed in that second article of both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed. We're going to focus on that. And then next week, uh, Father Steve will focus on uh, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and all of the, the meanings of that, which are so rich in Old Testament references, which is really his area of expertise. So um, we'll end up spending much more of the time on the eternally begotten phrase and some of the phrases that sort of pile up on top of that and expand on it. So let's read um, together. Um, and this week, since it's really short, the Apostles' version of the Creed is really short, let's just read the entire section that's um, uh, A, both the Apostles and the Nicene Creed, and we'll just read it together in unison. And we believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, his only, the only Son of God, our Lord, eternally begotten of the Father, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So that is in the bold type, obviously, the Apostles' Creed, and then the expanded version of the Nicene Creed. And remember, all of these expansions that came into the Nicene Creed, they, they came up because people started to say things about who Jesus was. They were actually contradictions to how he had revealed himself and how the apostles knew him to be. And um, a lot of times it was for somewhat benign reasons. I mean, they're trying to just help people understand. And in an effort to help people understand, they ended up emphasizing things that contradicted how Jesus revealed himself as both God and man. And therefore, that compromised salvation, like I've been saying. Um, and so each of these phrases end up being really critical, a specific counter to a lie or a diminishment, if you will, of who Jesus has revealed himself to be. And that has implications for our heart. Every time we talk about the creed, by the way, um, the creed is the same root in the Latin to the, the word we get crux from, right? So we're actually taking to heart. We're actually trying to rely upon the truth of God because we know it saves us. Like it says of Abraham, when he left Ur, he believed God and that was counted to him as righteousness. He relied upon what God had revealed to him and that became a saving grace in his life. So this is really critical we take to heart who God is in Christ, especially as he's revealed himself in Christ and all the saving work of Jesus. And um, so all of these phrases end up being really important to counter specific diminishments of how he saves us. And we'll try and take some of that apart. There's some expansions here that I've just included from the, um, the great prayer of the church, um, particularly the prayer that we pray during Lent. It's um, a guy named St. Basil. He um, expanded on the Eucharistic prayer that we normally pray during the year, and we do that during Lent. And he has um, done a number of the phrases in his prayer. What I, what I like to... What I'd like to say about this is that the reason I want to include it this week is not just because it helps us understand some of these phrases, but it illustrates that these truths are incorporated into prayer in the life of the church. In other words, they're not just supposed to be arid concepts. This is not just about an intellectual exercise. This really is an affair of the heart. And it's something that the church actually took into her prayer throughout the centuries. And so in St. Basil's liturgy, the, the, fa the, the spiritual father of the community, the one who's presiding at the table, and then everybody else who's praying along with him would be hearing about um, Jesus this way, that he's the great God and Savior. That's who Jesus Christ is. He is both um, God and Savior, the great God and Savior. He's our hope. 
Um, the second bullet point under the expansion from that prayer from St. Basil is he's the image of the Father's goodness. He's the icon of the Father's goodness. He is the visible representation of the invisible Father, and therefore he's the seal, that imprint, if you will, well, of the Father in an equal way, equal type, is how St. Basil puts it. And he shows forth the Father in himself to us. That's what Jesus says to the disciples. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he's the living word, the expression of the true God. He is also God. He's the wisdom before all ages. We'll unpack that a little bit more, just a little bit. Um, He's life. He is sanctification. He's the one who makes us holy. In other words, brings us back to God because we've fallen away from God. He actually has the power to bring us back to God. And he's the true light. The true light that's not been overcome by the darkness. So um, let's dip into this a little bit more deeply and um, take apart each of these phrases. And so we'll start with the only uh, begotten son. I've kind of collapsed these two together in your, um, in your outline, I think. The only and the eternally begotten. But we'll take those phrases separately. But he's the only eternally begotten. He's not made. He's the son of God. So uh, this is getting at a number of different things, but in short, um, the fathers are trying to say, look, he's, he's not adopted as we are, and neither is he fabricated or made the way all of uh, creation is with respect to his divinity, and he's utterly unique in that sense. So let's take only begotten son. This speaks to the uniqueness of Jesus as the son of God. And, um, and this is really critical for us because, in a way, for us to come to know God, we have to have our humanity taken into God. We have to be reacquainted with God. There's this infinite distance that's particularly been created between us and God when we fell. We fell away from him. And it's a, a span of distance that is impossible for us as finite creatures to you know, stretch over, if you will. And so this ends up being really important that he is son of God and that he is eternally begotten, that he's actually divine. Let me, um, let me get a little bit more specific here. Um, if we're going to be able to say our father, Jesus has sort of grafted us into his vine, that vine itself has to be defined, divine, right? He's grafted us into something that already exists for him. And that means that... Um, it is for him by nature what it comes to be for us by grace. He is by nature the son of God, and he's the only son of God. It's a unique reality of him. In other words, he's inviting us into that family relationship. He's, he is adopting us into it. He's grafting us into it. But he has it in a way that nobody else does. So um, it's um, his sonship is not like other creatures, like we're children of God, right? That's what the scripture says. We're his children by the grace of adoption through Jesus Christ. It says in Hebrews, you know, all those led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Well, Jesus is son of God, not in that same sense. Uh, He's the son of God, generated of God, or born of God, or begotten of God, outside of time. And it's an utterly unique thing that is unique to him. 
And that's how he is God. In other words, um, one of the ways that we can understand this is that we, um, as, as human beings, we can make stuff. But when we have children, we're not making our children. They're, we're giving birth to them through us. We're begetting them. And we're imparting to them our nature in a way that if we made something, we don't impart our nature to it. But Jesus is eternally begotten of God. And he is the unique one to, uh, to bear that designation. And there's a number of scriptures. I'll just, I'm going to go through a few scriptures here that sort of support what I'm saying that the church fathers at this time um, referenced when they came to, to putting it this way in the creed. So remember, both at Jesus' baptism and at his transfiguration, you have this voice from heaven that says, you're my beloved son. So that is one of the, the key ways in which we know that there's something unique. He's a beloved son. In the parable of the vineyard that Jesus tells, there's this owner, which is God the Father, right? And he's sending all these prophets to try and get people to return to him. And finally, he sends his beloved son, his only and unique son, and hope, hoping that, of course, that they'll receive him and they don't in the, in the vineyard parable. And then Paul speaks of, um, of Jesus as God's own son, whom he did not spare from death in Romans 8. Uh, both Paul and John are continually talking about Jesus as being sent by God, implying that he is uniquely from God in a way that has never been spoken of by, about any other human being. So he's a son, and he's not a creature. He's not crafted, so to speak, like the rest of creation. He's begotten or generated out of the Father. And that's a unique way in which he's the offspring. Of God the Father. Um, yes. One thing that just keeps striking me is that this the oxymoron is too strong or the wrong word. The, the, the coupling of eternally and begotten. Begotten has a beginning. If, if all of us have been begotten in a way, then we had a beginning. Um, coupling that with eternal, eternally, gives it this. Again, it takes it completely out of time. Yep. So we'll get to eternally begotten in just a second, because that emphasizes another aspect of Jesus' revelation, which is critical for our salvation. And it speaks to his divinity in a unique way. Um, But the first part of this is is the only part. And um, I can sort of bridge into what you're talking about, Jim, the eternally begotten uh, nature of Jesus um, in... um, uh, maybe I'll do. I'll use this analogy. There's a wonderful analogy that um, the fathers used at this time. It, it used this analogy of the word, the word as speech of a thought. Right. Every time we speak, it's the expression of a concept. Right. And they're really both the same thing. A concept spoken. They're one and the same, and yet they're different. Right. There's the, there's this spokenness that's associated with the word. And yet, when it's a word about a particular piece of content, you can see how they're united. And so Jesus is God spoken. He is the word made flesh. And, um, and that's really what they said the word was, or sometimes they refer to it as the logos. That was a Greek term for that, that Jesus is the logos, the word made flesh, and it is, he is both God and man. And that definition... That logos, that word, speaks of something, and in this case, it's speaking of God. 
And so um, there's one guy who said that his name is Gregory of Nazianzus. He says, thus the sun is a concise demonstration, an easy exposition <laughs> of the Father's nature. I like that. It's a concise demonstration, an easy exposition of the Father's nature. Didn't feel so easy to me as I was going through all of this. But um, he is the perfect expression of the invisible God made visible. But as Jim was saying, he's eternally begotten. And that's, that's another way that the, the creed is putting it. Um, and that's before all ages, before all times. In other words, he's beyond time, um, beyond all time. Um, and he's out of the Father who is beyond all time. And yet, we also know, by the way, that he's born in time, and we're not going to spend much time on that here this morning, um, because that's more about the incarnation, when Jesus is actually born in the flesh of Mary. But he's eternally begotten before all times and all ages of God the Father. And this was a specific contradiction to one of the lies that was being spoken um, so there weren't just people out there saying, hey, we're all sons of God, and therefore Jesus is just another son of God. That's what that first phrase only had to deal with. There were people out there who were saying that um, there was a time when Jesus, or the Logos, was not, where the Word was not. There was a time when the Word was not. The guy named Arius who said, there was a time when the eternally begotten Son of God was not. That was a lie. And that was one of the earliest heresies that generated so much of the, the, um, the conversation that ended up becoming the creed that we're looking at this morning. So the response was, no, as a matter of fact, there never was a time when the Logos was not. He was and is and is to come. And they were very much identifying the Logos of Jesus, the word of God, that... Um, that his way of being born of God is expressive of God's divinity. And it's, it is eternal. It's beyond time. It's outside of time. And so it's not really a physical birthing with respect to his divinity the way it is for us um, as children of earthly parents, right? His begetting has a before-all-time kind of quality to it. So let me just read from, I think um, it's probably coming to some of you right now, that in the beginning of John's Gospel, what we call the prologue, and then I'll jump ahead to the verses 14 and 18, you hear John really is meditating on this reality that um, he's speaking about Jesus as this eternally begotten word before time. And he says it this way. He says, in the beginning, or in the origin, there was the word, the Logos. The Logos was present with God, and the Logos was God. So he's saying that this word of God was present with God and he was God. And this one was present with God in the beginning. And all things came to be through him and without him came not to be a single thing that has come to be. And then later in verse 14, John the Baptist testifies concerning him and cried out saying, This was he of whom I said, He who is coming after me has surpassed me for he was before me. And the Logos became flesh and pitched a tent among us. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the Father's only one. There it is again, that only begotten one. Full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The one who is uniquely God. Who is in the Father's breast. That one has declared him. 
So there's just a, that's an incredible passage, and we could spend the entire Sunday school hour on that, but we're not going to do that. I just want to call out a few phrases here. Um, it's referring to Jesus, or the Lagos, as, as um, full of grace and truth. And that was an expression that was uniquely used of God in the Old Testament, particularly in Exodus 34, when, the, um, uh, when, when God is being revealed to Moses during those times of, of plague in the wilderness. And he speaks of the glory of God's presence um, as well when the Israelites are in the wilderness. And so those are words that John is pulling in that used to be referred directly and only to God, Yahweh. And he's referring them quite clearly here to Jesus. And so as a result, you know, he's really tapping into what later on, you know, all those phrases, you know, before Abraham was, I am, which is what makes the, the Jewish folks want to rise up, uh, the leaders at least, and stone Jesus at that point. And it sounds like blasphemy, but that's what's being revealed here. And that's why it's really important to hold on to it. Um, there, there's another thing I want to point out here too, is, is from the, this, um, this first section of John from the prologue, it says that Jesus is coming from within the heart of the Father, the Creator God, and thus he's uniquely able to disclose God in an intimate way. So this, is a, this actually ends up being really important. We long to and are made to know God in a very personal and intimate way. And in some sense, you can only know him from the inside. And that's what Jesus has, is this relationship that is so intimate with God, the way, with God the Father, that the way that, and so united with God the Father and his divinity, that it's like he's within the heart of the Father, the Creator. And so it's a special ability to uniquely disclose to, God, to us his Father in an intimate way. And then we can call him Father as well. We're entering right into that intimacy. So that's how he teaches us that prayer, our Father who art in heaven. Um, so that's a little bit on the eternal begetting of the Son. or the, It's um, something that happens beyond time or before all ages. And um, we'll talk more in future um, Sunday schools about his being born into history. Um, because he has both natures, both human, which is what he takes in the flesh from Mary, as well as divine. And both of those end up being really important. They're united in Jesus perfectly. And that is what bridges the gap, right? Because if he's, he's God and he's hermetically sealed in his Godhood, then we can't really reach him, can't really know him in the intimate way that we want to and need to. If he's only God, or he's like Arius said, he's maybe like God, but not really, or he's somehow lesser than God, then we're still stuck with a distance between us and him. And so these, these, um, these distinctions end up being really important. And, peop- and they knew this. They knew this because that's how they had experienced it themselves. They knew the salvation light that would go off in their own eyes, so to speak, and their hearts that would be strangely warmed because of this revelation. Let's go down to the next one. That, that B is light from light. Um, by the way, every time we say, you know, uh, light from light or true God from true God. It's, you could also translate it as out of. And it really wants, it's another way of just reminding ourselves that his divinity is really inseparable from the divinity that he completely shares with the Father. So 
He's light from light. And what that means in the, in the scriptures of particularly the Old Testament, but it's picked up strongly in the New by the apostles, is that Jesus is actually one in this divine glory. He, he's completely sharing in the divine glory of the Father. He's completely sharing in the wisdom and the sanctity and the creative and sanctifying power of God. I'll explain a little bit more by quoting a bunch of passages from scripture. But when it says light from light, he's the inseparable radiance of the light who sources the Father. We can't think of, uh, the Father's made a big deal about this too, is they can't think of the radiance of the light apart from the sun, right? I mean, it's just, it's impossible. They're really united. And so likewise, the Father and the Son is another way of saying he really is one with the Father. And therefore, therefore we have an ability to know the Father. And he can take us into that through his saving work. So, um, so John, back to the, the Gospel of John, his language... This he often uses the, um, the term light throughout his gospel. And that ends up being something he's pulled from the creation story, right? So if he begins his gospel with uh, this is the light that was not overcome by the darkness, he's pulling that in, and very specifically so, from Genesis, that the first part of creation was let there be light, right? And so that's part of what's happening here is... Um, that when Jesus create or when God rather creates by His Word, that is the light that's that's radiating and is completely one eternally with the Father. He's also referring to a lot of the wisdom passages. You can look in Proverbs eight, or you can look from the Apocrypha and Wisdom seven and, and Sirach twenty four. They are all kind of roots, if you will, that John is pulling into his gospel when he speaks of God as light. So there's really profound um, precedent in here talking about God as creator and associating with wisdom and light and specifically now it's being associated with Jesus. So this light um, uh, John says in him was life and the life was the light of men and that light shines in the darkness the darkness has not overcome and it's this true light that lights every man it was coming into the world in Jesus. Um, Later on, Jesus um, is quoted by John as saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Um, in the Old Testament, the word light is often just associated with presence or presence of God in particular. And it's often referred to as light for the people, as during the plagues or in the Psalms. It says in Psalm 26, for instance, the Lord is my light. Um, in Psalm 35, it says, in your light, we shall see light. And uh, so it's a very um, wonderful metaphor for talking about the presence of God with Israel. Um, except in, in Jesus' case, uh, it's really an elaboration of a very personal expression of God's presence. So it says in Psalm 88, in the light of your face, when speaking of God's presence, in the light of your face. And Jesus, of course, says, if you've seen me, you've seen the face of the Father. He's saying, I'm the light of the world because you've seen the Father by seeing me. You've come into my presence. I am truly God with you. I am Emmanuel. And so we have face-to-face kind of connectivity, especially in the light that shines through Jesus' face. Paul picks up the same theme because this was, again, his experience. And he's saved in light. He's bathed in light and saved in light. And um, so what he says, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in the hearts of believers to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face 
of Christ. So again, it's that personal reality of the saving encounter with God in Jesus. And, um, and he also, he, does a, he elaborates on this, by the way, as he contrasts how Jesus' light actually never dims, although Moses, of course, did in the Old Testament story, that Jesus is the continuous light. And if you see him, you see the Father, and that light floods the heart and casts out darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. Um, in Isaiah, it's a wonderful Old Testament um, expression, the second chapter of Isaiah, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. He's talking about God. And then in the great canticle of Isaiah from chapter 60, and this is one that means a lot to us as light of Christ, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you. And his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And that, of course, is a prophecy of that light that's rising in and through Jesus. And it's scattering the darkness. Um, Paul also says in Timothy, in his first letter to Timothy, God alone has immortality and dwells in unapproachable or inaccessible light. So that light which was inaccessible, God alone dwelt in it. But now Jesus has now shone forth that light to us and revealed to us in our humanity and made, it's in a profound way, a passage of accessibility to God. He's expressive of it in such a way that we can actually perceive him and appreciate him and enjoy him and be saved by him. And Peter says, we've been called out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is so marvelous. And James says, every good and endowment and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. And so this is Jesus, who is light from light, light out of light. He's eternal. He's light out of light. He's the only one. And in him, we come into that light, which is saving. And it's a personal face-to-face light of his countenance shining upon us and causing us to rise up in our hearts with him. So when we take this to heart, it's expansive. And there, we do it, we even say it, right? Like, don't we say, lift up your hearts. We lift them to the Lord. And so in a way, this is, um, this is what we're doing. We're, we're being lifted into the presence of that, the, the Father who gives good gifts from above. We're coming into that through this gift of light. Um, the last two I can go through rather quickly, and um, then we can take questions before we break up. I think we're almost done. Um, it says, true God from true God. This had to do with the fact that sometimes people say, well, he's sort of like God, but he's not so much God as God is God. You know? And uh, no, in fact, he is true God from true God. And um, he's not just appearing divine. He's really fully divine. There's not a gradation here. He's not downgraded God. You know? He's not uh, almost God. He is fully God. And that's really important because if he's not, then we can't fully be saved. We can't fully know the God who alone will satisfy the heart. And um, uh, Thomas, when he makes his confession at the end of John, is really clear about this. He says, my Lord and my God. 
It's this emphatic declaration that Jesus is true God from true God. Um, he's the true light, John says in the first chapter. Jesus describes himself as the true bread and the true vine. And therefore, when we eat of him, we partake of God. And when we are grafted into him, we have the sap of his divinity, which is his by nature, ministering to us by grace. Because he's true God from true God. And therefore, there's no longer a separation between us and the Father. And that's the last thing, is that he's of one being with the Father. This is uh, another way of saying that he's of the same divine essence or substance as the Father. Again, not just like God, but one in his divinity or his godhood. It's not two gods made of God stuff, but it's one being who are two persons, Father and Son, right? But one being that they share from God the Father. And again, there was never a time when Jesus Christ, when Christ was not. You can't speak of Jesus that way. He is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. He's of the same divine, eternal substance, and he's one being with that. Um, I'll just close by reading a, a little snippet from the, um, the 20th decree of the Nicene Council, which formed the first um, creed, which we now know uh, and say every Sunday. And um, this is Athanasius of Alexandria, and he's saying it this way. The Son is not only like to the Father, but that as his image, he's the same as the Father. That is, he's of the Father. And that resemblance of the Son to the Father and his his immutability or unchangeability, it's different from ours. For in us, our resemblance is something that we've acquired. And it arises from our fulfilling the divine commandments of believing and loving. Moreover, the fathers wish to indicate by this that, um, and, and the apostles and all those who speak in scripture, that Jesus' generation is different from that of human nature. That the son is not only like to the father, but inseparable from the substance of the father. That he and the father are one and the same in their being. And therefore, we can be saved. There's a lot more things that are critical for us to be saved, but these are huge for us. And this is what the fathers have elaborated when they speak of believing in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, the eternally begotten of the Father, the light from light, the true God from true God, the begotten, not made, who is one being and of one substance with the Father. Any, uh, any questions before we break into our group? All right, let's um, spend the rest of our time talking about the implications of this and what, whatever other questions you have. Let's break into our groups and go at it.